You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is a longtime friend and fellow Bitcoiner, Bill Miller IV. We've had Bill Miller Sr. on the show numerous times in the past, but never his fellow portfolio manager and son. During our conversation, Bill explains how him and his father first got into Bitcoin in 2013, haven't sold a single coin since, some of his thoughts on the broader markets handling inflation, Bitcoin versus crypto, sage advice that he's learned through the years, and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my chat with Bill Miller. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Bill Miller. Bill, we've been talking for years now, and it is about time we actually had a recorded conversation. So I'm excited to be doing this finally. Me too, man. That makes two of us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. It's about time. So let's just start with the overall markets because there's so much happening right now that, holy moly, I mean, the currencies, let's just start there. So when I'm looking at various currency charts, the DXY, the dollar is just ripping, absolutely ripping. And it's not like the dollar's ripping and you got all these other currencies that are about halfway through their move. It, it appears like a lot of these other currencies, the Japanese yen, the yuan, the euro, any major currency appears to be stopping out at whatever previous limitation that we saw against the dollar in previous currency cycles. And I guess for me, when I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the Fed getting ready to go into a 50 basis point hike, I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can, in the backdrop of that, like over in Japan, you got them still doing yield curve control? Like, how in the world is the market going to be able to handle this moving forward? So first of all, I'm not a currency expert. Let's start with that. But you know, with the Fed starting to raise rates, and you'd expect, I guess, the dollar to be getting stronger there, right? With uh, everyone else dumping currencies or dumping fuel on the fires in, in their neighborhoods as well. Yeah. But it's a really interesting setup, I'd say, macroeconomically here. I mean, if you think about what's going on with rates, what's going on with the housing market, what's going on with inflation and prices. We've seen a 40-year high in inflation, job markets on fire, people can't get enough housing. Now the Fed's starting to raise rates. I mean, you wonder how it's going to resolve, the situation is going to resolve itself when you're looking at, you know, you know, mortgage rates have made a dramatic move here over the past just couple months. I mean, going yeah. from all-time lows at two and change now to five, that's a big change. I mean, that's some unique interest rate or mortgage rate volatility that people hadn't seen before. But at the same time, housing prices are going up at 19% a year and you're financing that asset at 5%. So, you know, interestingly enough, the, the home builders uh, ETF is off year to date a good amount. But, you know, demand for housing is going to continue. It's just part of the problem is people can't get the supplies to build stuff, you know, because of uh, often talked about supply chain constraints you can't get stuff. And so that's slowing stuff down because inflation's been... And the Fed is so far behind the curve right now. It's interesting because the Fed was behind the curve, I think, the entire past decade. And it, it seems like 
and they, they came to a mea culpa actually a couple of years ago when the San Francisco Fed came out and said, look, you know, we told you 2% was a symmetrical target. Well, we actually went back and looked at our own meetings with a computer and, and analyzed the, the verbiage used. And it turns out that we were actually thinking about 2% as a ceiling, right? And so, which was interesting because then you have all these capital allocators, CFOs and stuff going, putting funds into the market going, okay, here. 2% should be a sort of symmetrical target. In reality, it was a ceiling. So they were too tight on the other end, which never allowed us to get to escape velocity, right? And now we're well beyond escape velocity and interest rates are still pretty much at zero and inflation's at eight. So, you know, the Fed has a very hard job. It's super hard. But if I'm in the Fed seat right now, <laughs> I'm going to come out of the next meeting and hike more than two hikes here, right? Because the market's expecting two hikes and acceleration. And inflation expectations are accelerated. So they got to get ahead of that and come out and do something like a, you know, maybe you come out and do, you know, 62 and a half basis points hike instead of 50. Just let the market know, you know, you're ahead of things. So if you're, if you're actually afraid of being too fast, I, I think that, you know, you can't rock the boat too much, but you got to get ahead of stuff at this point. That's funny you say that because uh, Greg Foss said something to me probably two days ago. He was like, I think it's going to be 75. And nobody in the market saying that. Most people right now, the consensus is it's 50 basis points. But I think Bullard came out maybe one day in last week and said, it's not my base case, but 75 is a possibility. And they were kind of testing waters with that one, but who knows? I guess the thing that's, that I'm really struggling with is I agree with that when you're looking at it just from like the US lens and how much inflation we have here, how far away, how far from the rest of the curve they are with the federal funds rate. But at the same time, I'm looking internationally and I'm looking at how all these other currencies are, they look like they're at a point that historically that trend line is suggesting that something breaks at this point. And they're still at 25 basis points. They, like you said, they basically haven't moved at all, right? They haven't moved at all. And, and the, the rest of the world is getting ready to break. I think when you look, China alone, I mean, look at China, the videos and stuff I'm seeing coming out of there. It's just, it's asinine. I don't know what's going on over there. It's uh, it's pretty scary, actually. I was trying to figure it out uh, on Twitter over the weekend. And it was interesting. People really sent me, you know, a wide array of different thoughts on it. And it, you know, it was a mix from people saying, oh, it's a strategic play to People saying no, there's there's internal fighting within the CCP, and uh, some of this has to do with just the resourcing that they have for food and water and whatnot. And you're seeing an infighting between Shanghai and Beijing. I mean, it. One thing's for sure: the videos are strange, like very strange, coming out of there. And and I wonder how much of it's just stuff we just really can't even understand from a resourcing standpoint. But yeah, I don't know it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with this next hike and then kind of how the fixed income market behaves from there. Do you, the, the, I'm seeing a, a growing chorus of people suggesting that we're seeing the long end of the curve kind of peak out right now. And we actually might start to see it get bid because they're trying to front run the big deflationary fit that's on the horizon. Do you buy that or you think there's still more to sell off here based on the, the negative spread to the inflation numbers that, we're, that we've seen printed? I mean, I think if you just look historically, when you're, when you're at this level of negative real rates, just the reflexivity of demand is going to be interesting. I think it's going to continue to be robust. With that said, if you get too much 
whipsawing volatility can throw off people's planning. And I, I think yeah. the Fed knows that. And I think they're ahead of that. And I think they, I mean, the Fed knows that when the curve inverts, <laughs> the bond market's predicting a recession, right? They know that yeah. now. Yeah. And they're watching that. They're watching their, you know, five-year forward indicator as well. It's the five-year, five-year forward, right? They keep a good look at that. That's now accelerated out to, to two, I think it's like 260-ish now, which tells you they're kind of, I think, behind the curve again. So there's all kinds of things that are accelerating and changing. They're saying, okay, time to get ahead of this and shut it down. But so there are things that are breaking. And I think that's why you continue to see this crazy volatility in all kinds of markets that are out there. I, and, but when I say breaking, I don't mean in a systemic sense necessarily, because it's every, and everyone's incentive to keep the thing together, right? And to keep everything moving along. And so history has shown that's generally what happens. And so you know, it's t- from an investment perspective, at least, it's hard to see, sit here and say, I got to go to cash or I got to go to you know, all bonds or whatever, because um, I think a recession is on the horizon. It's a very low probability event. And the great quote on that one is more money is lost preparing for recessions in the market than ever is actually lost in the recession itself or you know, the, the bear market drawdown or whatever. But yeah, so it's not, and I wouldn't say it's impacting like our positioning or the way we think about the world broadly, because we tend to bet broadly on growth and optimism and things working out. Well, yeah, I know. And I like that take somewhere. There's a bull market. You got to just kind of be able to look around and see where that might be. You know, when I'm thinking of one of the boldest calls that you and your dad have made through the years, I think we all know what that is. I'm curious if you're willing to kind of maybe share some of the the impetus and when you guys first kind of went into this trade. And I think it was back in 2015 was when you guys first- 2013. 20, 2013. Wow. Okay. 2013. And we, hey, Preston, let's not call it a trade. Okay. It's not a trade. <laughs> <laughs> We've been consistent buyers since 2013. So. Thank you for correcting that. And and what, I, have, what I, I personally doing? have never sold a Bitcoin button. What, do you, what am I doing calling it a trade? 2013. So everything that I've seen published is 2015. I did not realize you guys were in that early. Walk us through it. So, I mean, you guys would have seen and you guys would have had this, this opinion that the 2008 crisis was not solved. I'm assuming that was some of the impetus for, for the position. Walk us through it. What were you guys thinking? So it may even be more simple now, but by the way, I do, <laughs> my dad's probably not watching this show right now, but I'll come out here and say this, that I actually want to go on the record and compare. I don't know if we can do this in the blockchain or via our original, wherever we originally bought Bitcoin. I want to go back and see who bought Bitcoin earlier, me or him. He obviously has way, <laughs> way, way more than I do and has done way better in it. But I just want to go back and I, I do want to go back and take a look at that. But <laughs> it, the, the impetus for it was, uh, for me at least, was just repeatedly seeing this thing pop up in the newspapers and this crazy, interesting idea that was just this wacky thing. And it had gone up a gajillion percent, but it was really volatile and blah, 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 blah. And so then, you know, they talk about the white paper and go, okay, I got to take a look at that. Go read that. And you go, wow this is pretty cool. <laughs> this is really interesting. This is actually a unique idea. It's a new technology no one's ever seen before. And then it allows people to transact and exchange value with no central party or processor. Uh, it can't be censored. Wow. The supply is known ahead of time. Everyone knows the rules. This could have some really interesting you know, potential. And so started buying it then and 
followed it ever since. And it's the, the way it's scaled, the technology is just so cool. And so we've been, you know, actively interested in it and trying to let people know as broadly as we can about it. And it's, it's been a really cool asset for us. Uh, you know, whenever I first got into it, the big thing that was concerning, if you will, for its future was really kind of the scaling. How are we ever going to get to a point where we can do immediate settlement and have the bandwidth to go beyond, call it 400,000 transactions you know, per block or per minute? I forget what, what the number was, but um, how do we get to something that was comparable to Visa or MasterCard to handle the throughput? And you know, back then in, in 2015, there was ideas on what that might be, but there was no solution that seemed like there was that was coming around anytime soon. So, how did you guys, how did you guys think through that risk, and what you know, how to how to size the the position back then? How to think through the scalability risk? Well, so there, you know, there's actually different use cases for it, right? And that the transaction aspect of it doesn't need to occur necessarily for the idea to have value, right? And that you can have this digital ledger where you can store your own means personally. You don't need to necessarily be able to be using it every single day. And as a matter of fact, I don't, I, why would you want to spend something that goes up at 200% a year, right? Yeah. So like, I don't know. And, that, and that's part of the knock against it is that they're one of the many bear cases that have prevented people from making a lot of money so far over the past 12 years. People say, you know, you can't, it's too volatile, right? You can't, you don't know what it's worth. Well, <laughs> by the time it's no longer volatile, it'll be a you know, million dollars plus a Bitcoin. And so if you just look at it on a mean variance, you know, portfolio theorem, traditional risk return basis, if you add it to any portfolio, it would have done, made that portfolio much, much better on sort of the traditional financial metrics that people have cared about over time. But again, you don't need the transaction aspect to it. And I don't know if we necessarily saw that these additional layers would be built on top, you know, what like lightning network, that sort of thing. But we saw that the, certainly the case for the uh, value storage and the, the fact that the value couldn't be inflated away. And, and that's not a concern in the US, it's a concern in countries or hasn't, <laughs> hasn't been <laughs> at least in the past. But, you know, now, in other countries, in other countries, that is a huge benefit to it. Is that you know you can do remittances in a currency that's something that is appreciated over time, as opposed to lost purchasing power. And so there's all kinds of you know unique aspects to it that are really cool and different. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. 
That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Talk to us about the idea of not selling your winners. I think this is something that you and your dad have just, you know, when I think about what your dad especially is known for is really kind of this idea of not selling your winners. I know he's he's pretty famous for the whole Amazon, just owning that and not taking it out of his portfolio or de-reducing his, his size. He just lets it ride. So talk to us about this idea and why this is so important for successful investing. Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of things you want to do to be successful investing. One of them is minimize your liabilities. And so anytime you sell a heavily appreciated asset, really the only thing you know for sure when you sell that heavily appreciated asset is you just create a liability for yourself. And so even if you have a heavily appreciated asset, the, tang- the, the total addressable market is still huge. So it could still grow. Assuming its valuation isn't crazy you know, relative to its potential longer term. Even if you're going to compound at a below market rate, it may actually be rational to hold on to that just because if you look at the after-tax return, it's going to make sense. And so but if you can find something that has a massive addressable market with a phenomenal management team that can keep attacking it and, and just growing and, and building upon their scale and their moats, then you never want to sell that. And so, you know, <laughs> watching him and his personal accounts has been pretty cool too. I mean, that's been, I've, I've learned a lot from working with him, but, you know, one of the things I've learned is watching him manage his own money and he'll finance stuff with margin debt regularly. <laughs> so, you know, just because you don't have to create the liability, the margin debt costs a couple percent a year and he's confident it's going to grow faster than that. Not that I'm sitting here recommending people use margin debt because it, I think it requires a very thoughtful framework and approach to managing it and knowing the rules to it, which 
he obviously does and has done very well. But yeah, not and minimizing that tax liability is actually a very important thing that you know not enough people do. And you know, one of the great books on investing is I have it somewhere around here. It's just the old Jesse Livermore. Oh yeah, uh, reminiscences of a stock operator. One of the points yes. he makes in it is all the money he made was in sitting, not in trading. Right. Yeah. The big money is made in the big moves. And that that's, you know, that was I know that was one of my dad's inspirations for that approach. You know, it's funny. I I read that book after talking to your dad and him saying something very similar to me years ago about figure out what the big move is. And then once you get there, stay as long as you can. <laughs> stay as long as you think that there's, like you're saying, an addressable market that can keep letting it run. And that's how you really make a lot of money in, in some of these positions. Awesome, awesome feedback there. So Bill, let's change gears. Let's talk about the recent news here with Twitter and Elon Musk. What are, what are some of your thoughts on this? So we just found out today that, that the buy is going to go through. What are some of your thoughts around this one? Man, I could not be happier. I think, I think this is a, such a win for humanity. I saw um, Senator Warren tweeted that there's or said or something. This is dangerous. I thought dangerous is dangerous that the most successful entrepreneur in the history of the world is going to allow free speech on the, the town square for the world. What is the problem? I mean, this yeah. is fantastic. This is so good. You know, it's it's going to be cool. So we'll see what happens, but. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited about the news and I'm remaining skeptical on the application of everything that he says he's going to do. I suspect that he's going to, you know, he's going to open things up and we are not going to have this crazy censorship that that is so obvious, so insanely obvious on just so many different fronts. And man, I'm here for that. If if that's what is put in place, and I'm definitely here for the bots, these reply bots. Oh my God. Have you seen some of Michael Saylor's thoughts on implementing basically, you know, like a an orange verification badge for people that load Bitcoin into some type of escrow? And then I think this is such a brilliant idea and something that is so needed. You have to have some type of feedback mechanism that just prevents the spamming. I mean, my Lord. Any other comments or things on that? I'm excited. I, I just, yeah. Anything Michael Saylor says, I am a big oh, fan of. So brilliant. 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 Bitcoin versus crypto. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I do have some thoughts on this, actually. I don't own any quote unquote crypto. I think B3 owns some Ethereum. I think maybe through liquid traded vehicles, less so than owning it direct. But yeah, I just think that. I think there's one. I, I don't want to say I think there's one. I think there's one that stands above the rest. It's Bitcoin. I think when you look at the just theoretical underpinnings of it, the way it was constructed, the fact that there is no central person or set of people tied to it, I think that is just a massive, unique underlying attribute that's important to think about. And when you look at the verification, or we should let's call it consensus mechanism here for processing new blocks. Proof of work is important, I think, in that the base layer should be hard to create. It should take time. It should take energy. And the process has been set underway, and it just seems unstoppable at this point when you think about just the overall security around it and the feedback loops and all kinds of other stuff. It was really, I'd say, a stroke of genius 
for Satoshi. So it's, it's pretty cool. But you know, when you think about crypto and DeFi and the other stuff going on there, that obviously has a lot of potential. In some ways, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that we're, I, we're probably beyond the point of them being ruled uh, illegal securities offering some of these other things, but you never know, right? And, and that, that's already been ruled out, I think, for Bitcoin, which is one of the reasons I think why institutions are increasingly buying it, putting out their balance sheet. It's, I mean, a lot of it's been de-risked from that perspective, from the scaling perspective, from the technology, proving the concept. But, you know, a lot of people say, hey, invest in my crypto thing. And my take is, why wouldn't I just buy Coinbase stock, right? Because, I mean, or that should be their benchmark, quite candidly, if you want to talk about establishing a benchmark for a crypto thing, should be Coinbase stock. You know, Coinbase stock, they have, they are the 800 pound gorilla. They sit in the middle of it all. They have a ventures arm where you get access to all these other currencies, right? You don't have to deal with uh, some new setup. Most people probably have a stock account. Could it fail? Sure. I think it's unlikely. I think it's increasingly unlikely at this point when you look at the evolution of the ecosystem. But Coinbase is probably the place you want to be if you want to be in quote unquote crypto and have exposure to that whole to the to the entire ecosphere. And so it's not an expensive stock. I don't think at this point we think about the long term prospects of what's going on there. That's probably the way to get exposure to it. A real easy way for people to get exposure to it, I'd say long term. I liked your point about there needs to be some type of work or some type of energy commit to a base layer of this entire ecosystem. Because without that, I just I don't know how we're really saying we're solving anything compared to the existing system and, and quandary that we're in. And I, and I think it's important that you know, at the end of the day, opinions are opinions, but there, there needs to be some type of incentive that actually drives that to be the outcome. And when I look at the whole mining process, and I look at a lot of Michael Saylor's points about these reinforcing network effects that just naturally occur around proof of work, I suspect, and I think I'm very biased in this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I suspect that that is one of the reasons why Bitcoin is going to be paramount over all these other competing protocols is because those reinforcing network effects around energy. And we're, we're seeing this with the energy companies starting to really, they're, they're, I think their eyes are really starting to be opened up as to how this is going to assist them into handling additional energy production. And they've got these requirements for peak energy versus you know, their, their standard steady state energy demand, that so much of this is going to be reinforcing to Bitcoin. Is that what you're seeing as well, or is there something else that maybe you're you're looking at? No, I think that's exactly right. I think you know, <laughs> Bitcoin solves a lot of problems, and one of them is it helps eliminate waste in that current system. And so, it's really interesting to see some of the innovations that are occurring in the mining space. People using all kinds of unique energy sources that had either gone to waste before or had just not been properly utilized. You know, Exxon's flaring gas to mine Bitcoin now. It's just it's just crazy to see the extent of innovation, you know, going on around it. And so that's super exciting. There's less obviously attention and innovation, I'd say, around the overall process to this other stuff, to a lot of these other coins for obvious reasons, because they have different, they don't quite they have different uh, consensus mechanisms, I'd say. Less robust consensus mechanisms, I would say. But uh no, that, it's super interesting to see that all of the innovation going on, not only in the financial aspects, but in the energy 
you know, Bitcoin mining side of things too. Talk to us about, here's another thing that I, that I find interesting about you and your dad is this idea of concentrated investing. You hear some really greats through the decades that talk about this idea where, and I think Buffett has a pretty famous quote of saying that you have a pretty small amount of eggs that are in the basket and then you watch that basket really closely. What are some of your thoughts around this idea of concentrated investing that you'd like to tell people? Yeah, I think that's how you know massive amounts of wealth is made is through concentration. It's not through diversifying into different asset classes that'll do eight percent or you know eight percent with some level of specified volatility and you know put all kinds of constraints around what could happen. But at the same time, you know concentration does come with risk. But if you can find something at a very small size that could grow, that has a great management team, again, that you can talk about all these characteristics, potential for high returns on capital, eventual moat, you know, natural monopoly type characteristics, anything like that, and you want to ride that as, as far as you can, nope. so long as you're not going to be left in a position where if it goes you know, back to, back to some other, if it collapses or something doesn't go your way, you're not going to be broke or something. But concentrated investing is, if you look at actually the market and the history of the market, it's actually a very small number of stocks that drive the overwhelming amount of returns in the market. And the overwhelming number of stocks in the market at any given time underperform the index they're in over their lifetime at index. So, you know, you want, if you get concentrated and you buy, you know, most of the things you buy are probably not going to do very well. So if you, you got to find the stuff that makes sense, but if you find it, you want to stick with it for sure. You know, when you go to college and you study, you know, finance or you get an MBA, they throw around the term risk and it's almost like there's an equal sign to volatility. And like, that's just it. Like, that's just the law. Risk equals volatility. I tend to think that when, when I hear the word risk and volatility, I think that's for a money manager. That's for somebody who's managing somebody else's money who is entrusting them to do smart things with it. And they're risking losing that person as a client because there's too much volatility in their portfolio. When I think yep. about like the volatility in a, in, or I'm sorry, when I think about the risk in a company, it's the competitive moat, like you had said, right? That's the mm -hmm. thing that like, is there going to be impairment to the underlying assets that that sit on that company's balance sheet? That's the risk to the business and the risk to maybe their market premium and, and whether they're going to continue to have free cash flows into the future and all that kind of stuff. So like risk should be based around you know, a really deep analysis on the underlying assets and how they sit in a competitive environment. But it's almost like that's not even discussed in college. Like why, how in the world does that like not get discussed? It's about volatility and betas and this and that. Like it's just- Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, things that go up a lot are going to be volatile too, by definition. By right? definition, yeah. <laughs> so that's important to keep in mind. But um, yeah, no, I, if you think about investing, it's an optimization problem. And a lot of these people that want to bucketize things and put things into these unique categories, all they really do is constrain their outcomes. And optimization problems generally do, few, do better with fewer constraints, right? And so you at the same time, it gives you more opportunity to do something dumb. But the whole mean variance portfolio theorem, I think it misses a lot of... Uh, I think there's underlying assumptions about it. And I'm sure academics will tell me I'm wrong on this. But you think about the whole premise there and it's 
you got to hit this rate of return because you got to draw down some portion of fund or you need a big portion of it at a given time. If you don't need the money in a year or two years, why are you caring about the volatility of that Mm -hmm. in the short term? Right. And so if you can do, do well on something volatile over the long term, it makes a lot of sense to just sit in it and not think too, too much about it or try and trade it. As we said earlier, the big money's made in the big moves and in sitting, not in, you know, trying to trade stuff around and create tax liabilities. And then you got to spend time figuring out that managing your gains and losses. And Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And that's a good highlight that you had there as well, which is the... uh you know, if you if you know you're going to need whatever amount in a year from now, well, then you have to think about that volatility a whole lot more than if you're buying stuff like Bitcoin and you plan on owning it until the cows come home. You're not trading it. <laughs> not a trade. I, I appreciated that correction. I really did. Uh, <laughs> talk to us about this idea of dematerialization. And about institutions, very important institutions through the years, and how so many of them are being dematerialized. Super interesting. And it's all being driven, I think, by technology and the accessibility of information now. We can get educations online for free. I mean, and just it's all out there if people want to learn, right? And so at the end of the day, you know, I think schools are becoming more behavioral management organizations rather than you know, actually needing to provide the education. And if you just think about, let's go to schools. You talked about organizations broadly. Let's touch on schools. I'm a big believer in education. My whole family is a big believer in education. I spent a lot of money and time at good schools, did post-school education through the CFA, CMT. Got to learn every day in 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 what we do. So... I'm a big believer in it. I just think that when you kind of look at the core role, it's it's evolving a little bit. And education, the cost of a college education has gone up, I think it roughly three times the rate of CPI over the past like three decades. And so that's just, <laughs> that's not sustainable. And so I think a lot of these schools have become victims in a way of their own success. And what happens is over the years, people will go to these schools and they were centralized locations for learning in times when this kind of information wasn't accessible more broadly on the internet. And so, you know, people will go to these schools to learn and they'd learn a lot of stuff and they'd, you know, some people would be very successful and earn a lot of money and, and they'd give it back to the schools, rightly so, because the schools helped them learn what the knowledge that allowed them to generate, you know, fungible means. And so they would give it back to the school. It made a lot of sense. And then that process just continued and continued and continued and still continues today to the point now where a lot of these schools just have such large pools of resources that they don't necessarily need. It attracts certain types of people that don't necessarily care about tangible outcomes in all kinds of different ways, right? And so this then just feeds on itself in a way over time. And Interestingly enough, now people can get their educations online if they really want to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, these schools are still great filtering, you know, or, you know, sieve mechanisms to get you to, you know, if somebody went to a really good school, they probably studied hard and there's some floor on you know, their IQ or capability set or something, I think. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how this evolves. And by the way, this is coming from someone that like, highly values education. So, but I, I think right now that one of the implications for an investor is that there's probably going to be a lot of money made in education, educational pursuits online. Yeah. The dematerialization of the status quo of learning, if you will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you know, this is this is another one of Michael Saylor's big big things that he's uh really working on is like how do I make how do I dematerialize the cost of education because I can warp myself through space and time and gain access to some of the best professors on the planet for whatever the subject might be. You know, it's funny, there's this uh there's this app, it's Dragon something that my son, who's very young, is there learning algebra. He has no clue how to do algebra. All he knows is when I match this picture or inverse this picture or whatever, he's learning like the rules and the process of algebra. And then they just swapped out the pictures with numbers and there he is like doing algebra. It was, it was somewhat crazy to, to witness. He doesn't understand why or how, but he's, he's conditioning his brain through these apps. And I think that's just like one small example of so many things you can do in the education space moving forward and like people paying a quarter of a million dollars for an education. And it's like, my God, you can learn a majority of this for literally nothing online if you, you know, just have the- you put your mind to it. If you put right? your mind and- to it and you have the, the drive and desire, right? All right. Uh, final, final question here for you. What's up with you and your dad with the firm? Is he uh, retiring soon? Is he is he kind of slowly, you know, phasing out uh, from doing it? What's going on? Because I he he's hasn't been, been on the show for a while. No, he, well, he's trying to he's trying to just do, pursue his own intellectual pursuits, and he's doing a lot more philanthropic stuff and hmm. thinking about that. And um, yeah, he's not he's becoming increasingly less involved in the day to day management of the actual funds he is you know i'd say he's still actively involved but he's not doing as much as he used to and he's not doing it around the clock like he used to can he hang it up (laughs) (laughs) no i think he's always going to be looking for the next big idea for sure yeah (laughs) for sure (laughs) so he can't really he's never really gonna hang it up i i totally agree with you on that point um but he is looking to does he become more lethal as he's as he's more focused on only a couple things. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's a very good point. That's a massively important point. Um, focus matters for sure. And uh, no, he's just looking to turn it over to the next generation. So I'm excited to you know actually taking a little bit of a different direction here, just because I think technology is now at a point, and the investment landscape is at a point where you can do some really interesting things and level the field, I would say, for the retail guy and actually help them understand more what an active investor is doing, why they're doing it. You can see uh, new types of products that have daily transparency, right? So people can actually see what you did yesterday and maybe you can uh, let them know why you did it yesterday, which you couldn't do for a retail crowd before. You know, The mutual fund thing is shrinking slowly every single year as the data shows. And I think there's an opportunity to you know, launch a, a platform here where you can better help the retail investor think about active investing and where it fits into their portfolio and their financial planning space. And, you know, there's just a ton of really good content out there. I don't know if you read The Psychology of Money. No, I haven't read that. She, it, I highly, I thought I'd put one around. I know I have one on this shelf. This book, Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money. Okay. Great, great. Oh, I'll have to pick Great book. Up. You you have to read that. I'll send you a copy for, oh, yeah. for having me on. Yeah, I'd love to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But that that kind of stuff you can 
you can even take that the contents in that book or the ideas right and boil them down and do them in a different you know format and yeah do some pretty cool stuff on the uh the media side of things so we are actively hiring for people that can help with that kind of thing and produce that content oh cool that's awesome okay all right bill well i mean thank you so much for coming on the show like i said in the in, in the intro there we should have done this a long time ago and it's just been a pleasure knowing you and your dad through the years and it was awesome seeing you down in florida super cool that was really quite interesting and it was even more interesting that when i bumped into you i was there with tur demeester yes i mean come on that's just so serendipitous because i know oh what was it probably back in 2017 your dad reached out to me and he's like hey do you know tur and i was like yeah let me introduce you to him and so those two linked up and then you and I just happened to bump into each other down in Florida and there's Tur at the same time. It was just wild, but so cool. So neat. I, it's just crazy. Yeah. I had, I, I had a great conversation with Michael that day and all kinds of fascinating Bitcoin topics. It was super cool. I mean, you know, that was the first time I met Michael when we were down there and having interviewed him, just meeting him in person, like, oh my God, he is beyond <laughs> smart like he's awesome <laughs> just so nice and just so nice and just easy to talk to just a great guy but i learned um, a ton that day it was oh, super cool yes all right well thanks for coming on uh bill and we'll have links to all your handle on twitter and also the the company and the firm and and all of that is there anything else that you wanted to highlight before we uh, wrap it up no, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, Preston. It was great. Thanks again. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.